Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. Wait, what? No, we're not. I'm Andy. And I'm Rachel. Together we are Picture the Scene Podcast. We release every second week on a Tuesday and we cover crime from all over the world with an emphasis on the UK. We admit, we're no Beth and Bailey, but when you've caught with them, why not come and give us a listen? We can be found wherever you're listening right now. Take care and stay safe. Welcome back to True Crime B&B. I'm Bailey. And I'm Beth. And this is episode 41. And guess what? Today we have special guests. And they are Andrew and Rachel from Picture the Scene podcast. And we love them. And we listen to every one of their episodes. And we encourage that you would do the same. You just heard their trailer. Mm Mm-hmm. So Andrew and Rachel, would you mind introducing yourself? Of course. So I'm Andrew. I'm Andy. One half of Picture the Scene. I'll say hello to your listeners and then I'll let Rachel describe what we are. Oh man, I was going to let you describe and then I was going to fangirl and say I'm Rachel, the other half, and we love True Crime (laughs) B&B. But Andrew has put the pressure on now, so I better introduce us. So we are picked to the scene and we aim to put you, our listener, at the scene of the crime. How did I do, Andrew? Uh, sparkly 10 out of 10 i think that was perfect because that's exactly what you do and by the end of the episodes i always totally get what happened so you always have so many good theories about why did this happen and i just think you do a terrific job so what we're going to do today is true crime bnb is going to be the bad guys and picture the scene is going to be the good guy this time mm-hmm. and we will get started then we can see where it goes from there sound good Yes, let's do this. So, can I ask a question? Because we ask it at the start of every one of our pods, and I feel like I should ask it now. Are you ready for some true crime? We are. Are you ready for some true crime? We are, indeed. Always. All right. Does anybody ever say no? (laughs) No, not today. One day. (laughs) One day, yeah. (laughs) One day, Bailey. (laughs) We really don't like true crime. Our story today is from the U.S. It takes place in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it involves a young man named Yoshihiro Hattori. Yoshihiro Hattori was born in Nagoya, Aichi Prefecture in Japan on November the 22nd, 1975, to his father Masaichi Hattori and his mother Mieko Hattori. He was the middle child with two siblings, and he went by the nickname Yoshi. At the age of 16, he was accepted into the American Field Service Student Exchange Program on a scholarship from the Marita Foundation. So Yoshi traveled to Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the southern U.S. in August 1992 to stay for a year in the home of Richard and Holly Haymaker and their son, Webb. Yoshi was a rugby player, and at McKinley High School, he threw himself into a jazz dance class. He was very athletic and graceful. He was socially open, and he made friends easily. His host family described him as ebullient, a total extrovert, and a free spirit. His host father, Richard, described him like this. He was a really, really extraordinary guy. He was life. He moved through space like a dancer. Remember that description of the way he moved. I want to meet Yoshi. I know. Yoshi sounds like an amazing kid. According to his host mother, Holly, Yoshi was just a kid who wanted to eat life alive. Throughout his life, Yoshi had always wanted to visit America and had big dreams about his time there. He loved the high school. He felt very welcome there. He was making friends. He sent letters back to the principal of his high school in Japan, telling him stories about the kind and generous people he had met in Louisiana. Oh, that's quite right into your principal. You don't see many teenagers doing that, do you? Well, I never knew my principal that well, but I suppose that he probably came from a smaller 
high school than some of the large ones that we have here. We get up to, you know, 2,000, 3,000 students at a high school here. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to get tight with the... Yeah, I had 600 in my graduating class. (laughs) Wow, 600. He he does seem quite respectful for a teenager, though, doesn't he? He seems like a good kid. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, how glowing all of the reports are on him as well. Absolutely. And there are more. At the end of September 1992, Yoshi had gone with Holly and Webb to a local blues music festival where Yoshi quickly noticed a Japanese girl in the crowd and went over to speak to her. After talking for a few minutes, she had invited him to a Halloween party in central Louisiana. That's a town, not central Louisiana, but the town of central Louisiana, which was about 25 minutes away. The party was being organized for Japanese exchange students, and he thought that sounded like a lot of fun. So on October the 17th, 1992, Webb, still wearing a neck brace from having broken his neck months earlier in a swimming pool accident, wrapped bandages on himself to approximate a mummy costume, and Yoshi dressed in a ruffled shirt with a white suit and lots of jewelry and went as Tony Monero from Saturday Night Fever, which was the John Travolta role. And I wish we could have seen a picture of him in this costume. Oh, I bet that was adorable. <laughs> Did yeah. you see a picture? I bet it was. Oh, okay. No, no, I wish. I love anyone who embraces bandages for the mummy look for Halloween. <laughs> Cheap, effective, <laughs> bravo. Well, it's hard to disguise a neck brace. So I think he was just rolling with what he had to work with. (laughs) Absolutely. And went with it, right? Exactly. The costume was perfect for him, as Richard Haymaker noted, because, quote, I will never forget how Yoshi moved through space. He would walk so gracefully, almost dancing through the house, unquote. Again, remember this description. Webb drove the pair to the party and they accidentally ended up five houses down the street from their destination through a mix-up in the street address numbers. 10311 was where they stopped versus 10131, which was the correct street address. When they pulled up, the house did have Halloween decorations outside and several cars were parked in the driveway. So to these two boys, it appeared to be a house that would be having a Halloween party. The boys got out of the car and walked up to the front door. They rang the doorbell, but no one answered. A young woman, later identified as Bonnie Piers, opened a side door next to the carport. Do you know what a carport is? Do you have those there? Is it just a driveway? I don't know. Basically, it's a cover over a driveway. So you would park your car under a roof, but there's no walls or door. So it's just an open garage, basically. Yeah. <laughs> cheap it's cheap <laughs> oh. yeah those are the, not the nicer ones <laughs> no those are the cheap ones so bonnie Piers opened the side door next to the carport and looked suspiciously out at webb yoshi noticed that the woman had opened the door and thinking that she intended to let them inside the party he started walking towards her but bonnie Piers wasn't having a halloween party and apparently was very skittish about having these two young men in her front yard as soon as she saw yoshi walking towards her She slammed the door and screamed at her husband, Rodney, to go get his gun. At this point, what could go wrong, right? At this point, it had become clear to Webb that this wasn't the right house. And he suggested to Yoshi that this wasn't the place. As Yoshi and Webb started to go back down to the car, Rodney Pierce opened the carport door again. As he did, he was holding a 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson pistol with an 8-inch hunting barrel. Webb could see the gun, but either Yoshi didn't or perhaps thought it was part of a costume. Yoshi started to step up towards Rodney Pierce and smilingly told him, we're here for the party. Rodney Pierce held up the gun and shouted, freeze. And Webb tried to warn Yoshi to stand back, 
but Yoshi couldn't see very well because he wasn't wearing his contact lenses. Also, he had no idea what freeze might mean in American slang. It has also been suggested that perhaps Yoshi may have thought this whole scenario might be a Halloween prank. But regardless, Yoshi didn't know that freeze meant stop moving where you are. And so he smiled broadly and continued walking towards where he thought he was supposed to go to enter this party. When Yoshi got to within five feet or one and a half meters away from Pierce, Rodney Pierce shot him in the chest and then immediately disappeared back into the house. Why? why? I mean, I'm not up to date with all the gun culture because we don't have it here. So owning a gun seems alien and strange to me. I'm a little bit wrong, but I hope I've not offended any of your listeners there. But if someone's walking towards you smiling and, and I mean, fair enough, he's dressed like, he's dressed like John Travolta. So it's it's not (laughs) like he's... Sure well, I might pull. I might pull a gun on John Travolta if he was walking at my driveway. <laughs> but, but there's, there's no threat to life there, though, is it? A teenage, no. a teenage boy. Oh, oh, anyway, yeah. Well, could and, they have been trick or treaters? Legitimately, could they have been like after candy or whatever? Well, this was the 17th, so Halloween was still two weeks away. Right. So they probably wouldn't have thought it was trick or treaters. But you'll see that your statements and your questions will come up again during the trial. Because the things you're saying are the same things that other people were saying at the time. So he had disappeared back into the house. Webb went over to check on Yoshi, who was crying and moaning, but awake, and then ran next door to try to get some help. He brought the neighbor back to attend to Yoshi's severe injury. The neighbor called up to the house, asking the peers for help, and the peers just yelled back at them to go away. Yoshi had a gunshot wound that had penetrated the upper and lower lobes of his left lung. The exit wound was in the area of the seventh rib, and he was losing way too much blood. As he lay in the front yard, his ruffled white shirt and white jacket became totally soaked through with blood. Emergency personnel arrived 40 minutes after the shooting. I have no idea why it took 40 minutes, but nevertheless, it took him 40 minutes to get there. At that time, Pierce finally came back out of the house. Yoshi was loaded into an ambulance, and that was where he died from blood (sighs) loss a few minutes into the trip, perishing before he ever reached the hospital. Wow, you've got to feel for... I just feel for his parents, because he's so far away, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the the pure innocence of it all, they got the wrong house number. Like, that's the most tragic instance here, is that like just miscommunication of a couple of numbers the wrong way around. Oh, that's hard. This is heartbreaking. Everything about this is just the everything happened exactly wrong. Yeah. All of these things went together and happened exactly wrong. Police took Webb to a nearby police station until they could reach his parents. Richard and Holly had taken a date night to go see a film that had reenacted the violence of the French and Indian War. On their way home, ironically, they had commented how happy they were that the modern world is not as violent as it used to be. And then Holly's work pager went off. Holly was a physician and the work pager meant she would be needed at the hospital. But when they found a payphone, because they didn't have cell phones back then. <laughs> yeah. When they found a payphone and she returned the call, they told her to come to the police substation because there had been a terrible accident. They told her Webb was okay, but that Yoshi, even while they mangled his name, Yoshi was very hurt. When she asked why she would go to the police station rather than to the hospital, she was told that it wouldn't be necessary to go to the hospital. Oh. Over the phone. That's yeah. 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 And she'd have known at that point, right? That would that would have yeah. sunk in. 
As a doctor, I'm sure she knew exactly what that meant. Mm -hmm. Arriving at the police station, Holly and Richard found Webb sitting alone in a big room with fluorescent lighting. He asked her, Mom, what happens when somebody's shot in the chest? And Holly replied, well, sometimes they live, often they die. And Yoshi died. All Webb could respond was, his poor mother, as he dropped his head down into the cradle of his hands. Yoshi's parents arrived from Japan two days after his death to claim their son's body and arrange for him to be transported home. Holly and Richard dreaded the first meeting of the two families since the Hattori's had trusted them to care for and protect their son. But when the haymakers met Masaichi and Mieko for the first time, Yoshi's mother put her arms around Holly and asked, how is Webb? Can you imagine the humanity of that? Yeah. Just the grace of being able to ask that question when your own son has been killed. Absolutely. Japan took up the death of Yoshihiro as a symbol of all that had become wrong with the United States. And throughout the country, there was anger and bitterness, resentment and pain. Over a thousand people jammed the street in front of the Hattori house on the day of the Buddhist ceremony where they laid him to rest. The yard was filled with elaborate flower arrangements from individuals, neighbors, relatives, colleagues, local and national companies, as well as the Haymaker family. The Japanese press was filled with scathing criticism of the national culture that would allow such a thing to happen. They didn't even suggest that the shooting was racially motivated. They were trying to make the point that this could have happened to anyone at all under the right circumstances. The Shukan Post published an article that read, in part, quote, that the man who shot a 16-year-old boy dead was not a gangster or a thief, but just an ordinary citizen, that is the most frightening thing about this case, end quote. Rodney and Bonnie Pierce had been briefly questioned by police the night of the shooting, but they were allowed to return home with their infant daughter after the officers came to the conclusion that the Pierce had shot Yoshi in what they believed to be an act of self-defense. To one detective, yeah, I, I agree with you. Rachel just threw her hands up, but yes, I agree. It, I, can't, I can't understand how they thought that. To one detective, Rodney had said, boy, I messed up. I made a mistake. And according to a retrospective article done 27 years after the killing, one of the Pierce children later said that Bonnie had asked Rodney, why did you shoot him? Upon hearing that no charges were to be filed in the case of Yoshi's homicide, the Louisiana governor, Edwin Richards, and the Japanese consul general in New Orleans both protested. And on November 4th of the same year, Pierce went before a grand jury and was indicted and charged with manslaughter. During his trial, Rodney Pierce testified in his defense, stating that it was a person coming from behind the car, moving real fast. At that point, I pointed the gun and hollered, freeze. The person kept coming toward me, moving very erratically. At that time, I hollered for him to stop. He didn't. He kept moving forward. I remember him laughing. I was scared to death. This person was not going to stop. He was going to do harm to me. When Yoshi was about five feet from Piers, he shot the boy once in the chest, adding, I felt I had no choice. I'm very sorry that any of this ever happened. I want Yoshi's parents to understand that I'm sorry for everything. And I believe he probably was sorry, but you can't take that back, right? Sorry's not enough. No, you can't take that back. Manslaughter seems to me probably would be the right thing to charge with because it wasn't probably intentional, but again... If someone doesn't have the gun, they don't have that choice to make the wrong choice in the first place. Both families agreed with you 100%. Bonnie Pierce also testified. In her testimony, she tried to explain why she felt so panicked about a small of stature young man who 
they said he was 130 pounds, which is a very small young man. Mm -hmm. He was smiling. He was being polite. Her statement was, he was coming real fast towards me. I had never had somebody come at me like that before. I was terrified. There was no thinking involved. I wish I could have thought. If I could have just thought, well, you were in the house. Why could you not have closed the door and thought? Yeah, they're the ones that kept peeking their heads back out, right? Yeah, if they had not answered the door, the boys would have left and gone to the correct house. Yeah, they're just, they're playing out a narrative that they think that the jury are going to listen to, but it's just so wrong. And you hear this so often, don't you? You know, oh, he came at me, he looked menacing, or, you know, she had attitude or whatever. But that's your perception, that's not fact. And it's really couldn't have been nice for his family to hear that, you know, he was coming at this woman in the dark when actually far from it, he thought, I'm at the right house, they're welcoming me in. And actually, you you made a point earlier that nobody said it was potentially racial, but that hadn't even crossed my mind. But actually, isn't that what happens so often? It is, frequently. Yeah, where people of different race, people of colour, are deemed to be this threat to others when actually they're just going about their normal business there's absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about their behavior but somebody says oh well you know it it was menacing or it was threatening or I felt scared like that is going to play out well for them and actually just blatantly shows their racism and their awful like views on humans I think that when we get to the part where we have a resolution to the trial, we will revisit what you just said, because all this time, the Hattori's are sitting in this courtroom while these two people are describing how weird they thought their son was acting. And he was just a kid walking up to a door, smiling and trying to go to a party. So Yoshi's father, Masaichi Hattori, listened to this testimony that described his son and the way these people thought his movements were so strange and that his actions were so strange. They had both talked about how erratically he moved, how he seemed not to walk like a normal person. Mr. Hattori was outraged by these descriptions that people felt something was weird about his son and something was weird about the way he moved. He said his son was just a normal, regular person. And according to the haymakers, Yoshi moved gracefully like a dancer, not erratically or frighteningly. So the trial went onward for seven days in May 1993, with the defense arguing that Rodney Pierce was within his rights to use deadly force if he truly believed his life or his property were at risk. Now, this is a common castle doctrine claim that if your life or property are threatened, it's justifiable to use deadly force. And I don't know that other countries have this or don't have this. I just know that it's very common here Mm -hmm. for either whole states or municipalities to allow for deadly force if you are attacked in your home. But just having somebody walking up to the door, I don't see how that's justifiable. No, I agree. In the UK, it's very rare. You can defend yourself. But if you defend yourself, even if it's without deadly force, but especially with deadly force, you have to be able to categorically prove that your life was in your property. It doesn't matter about your property. It doesn't matter if they're going to take your property, but you can't use force, any type of force. But you have to categorically prove that your life was in danger. It's not just good enough saying, I thought it was. Like the person has to already start attacking you or beating you or doing something which makes you it obvious that, yes, if I don't retaliate, I will die. 
basically. Or if he was walking up there with a gun, okay, yes. now you're in danger. Yeah. If he's in your house, now maybe you're in danger and he's going to hit you in the head with a light pole or a light pole. A light pole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that even means. A candlestick or something. Okay. So, wow. Are we playing a game of Cluedo now? <laughs> maybe we should be. Anyway, the defense was claiming that the wife's panic was about the strange way that they thought Yoshi was moving when he was walking toward the house. And that had caused her husband to flip into protection mode to protect his home and family. And what it came down to was she was panicky for no good reason, in my opinion. But because she was panicky, it made her husband get panicky. And after deliberating for three hours, the jury ultimately found that he was not guilty. Upon announcement of the acquittal, some of the spectators erupted in applause while Mr. and Mrs. Hattori sat in that courtroom listening to their son's killer being basically uh -huh. vindicated. While the Japanese press didn't make claims that the shooting itself had been racially motivated, it's hard to ignore another question. Yeah. If this had not been a Japanese exchange student, perhaps this jury might have been more inclined to hold Rodney Pierce responsible for his actions. And I started to write this in here, but because Bailey and I had discussed this, if these roles had been reversed and the Japanese exchange student had shot a white guy walking up to his door, you know darn well that that jury would have found him guilty. Mm -hmm. yes. There's there's no possible way that that wouldn't have happened. We think that this verdict was bullshit, basically. It possibly. <sighs> and the only thing I, I have to say is, it feels to me, and again, I might be oversimplifying this, that because you've got that defense that if you feel threatened, basically, you, you can take action. Surely anyone can say that everyone can get away with it. I think that that's going to completely depend on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But one positive thing is that just because he was found not guilty in the criminal court, that still left him open to being sued in civil court. Right, okay. So barring any kind of conviction in the criminal court, in 1994, the Hattori's sued Rodney Pierce in civil court. Lawyers argued that Bonnie Pierce had grossly overreacted to the presence of the boys ringing her doorbell, which she did. Mm -hmm. They argued that the Pierce did not try to communicate even to each other what they actually thought was the threat. And instead, she just told him, go get his gun. And he just went and got it with no real conversation about why. Had they truly been in danger, their safest option would have been to stay in the house and call the police, which they did not do. And that Rodney Pierce should reasonably, even if there was a real threat, he should reasonably have fired a warning shot rather than shooting to kill before any of those other actions were ever taken. Yeah. They also argued that Yoshi's 130 pound size would have made him very easy to subdue by the much larger Rodney Piers. I think he was six foot two. Okay. Finally, forensic evidence presented by the plaintiffs illustrated that Yoshi was not moving, quote, quickly and strangely at all. He was moving slowly and his arms were away from his body, indicating that he wasn't at all a threat to the Piers. This time, the court found that Rodney Piers had not acted reasonably in shooting Yoshi. So despite the acquittal in criminal court, the Hattori's won their civil action against Rodney Pierce, in which damages of $650,000, and Bailey translated this to 573,000 British pounds, were <laughs> awarded to them. Rodney Pierce was himself responsible for all but $100,000 of the damages because the $100,000 was paid by his homeowner's insurance. <sighs> he lost his home. He lost his job as a butcher. And when he appealed the civil decision in 1995, it was upheld by the Louisiana Court of Appeals. Pierce afterward vowed never to own a firearm again. 
Well, too little, too late. It's wow. a little too late. I mean, it's good that they got some sort of justice, but it's not the same as a criminal conviction. I was just no. thinking about the gun. Again, showing my lack of knowledge here, but when you say like a Smith & Wesson Magnum 44 with an 8-inch barrel, mm-hmm. is that a dirty Harry gun? Basically, yes. That's basically a dirty Harry gun. It's one of the big ones that will take your head off. Wow. Not that I'm really that big on gun knowledge myself but i do recognize that's a dirty hair <laughs> but you know you know what doesn't sit well with me is that in the criminal court that they got away with lying about the boy uh yoshi and they also you know had to put that family through hearing those awful things about their son that will never escape their memory yeah so they may have been rewarded with money but yoshi won't ever come back and he may never own a gun again but he's still taken away that poor boy and tarnished his reputation in the american press because no doubt the press were you know kind of reporting on what was said in court and and about yoshi so there's no amount of money in the world that would repay that kind of damage and hurt i think that to talk to the average american we're not all gung-ho on everybody having guns we live in georgia where it has just been made legal to have concealed carry of a firearm without any kind of license i could literally go to the store and buy a pistol and stick it in my shirt and walk outside and go to the mall if I wanted to. That would be perfectly legal. That seems a little strange. Most people in the country, there are people who think everyone should have 100 guns and the more people have guns, the safer you'll be. Mm -hmm. Well, we can clearly see that's not true. But there are the majority of people in the country do believe that common sense gun laws should be in effect. But when we finally got that, then we had 9-11 happen and then everybody was terrified and everybody started going buying guns again. So we'll kind of come back to that. So if it's okay, we'll, we'll go on to what happened after the civil trial and then we can kind of wrap it up towards the end with the rest of that. Yeah, Is that all right? Sense. Yeah, sure. With the money that they received, Yoshi's parents created two foundations in his name. One was a charitable fund to assist American high school students who want the chance to visit Japan. Over two dozen American high school students have been placed in homes for their chance to live in Japan with families for one year. The purpose of this is to let these students learn Japanese culture and lifestyle, and also to let them learn what it is like to never live in fear of gun violence, something they can't learn at home in the U.S. For contrast, in 2014, there were six gun-related deaths in Japan. And they had 127 million people in that country at that time. The same year, there were 33,599 gun-related deaths in the U.S., which had approximately two and a half times that many people. The disparity is just mind-boggling. The other charity that was created from the funds is an organization that has the goal of gun control and reform in the United States. Both the Hattori's and the Haymakers became very active in campaigning for gun law reform and in fact presented a petition to then-President Bill Clinton, which had been signed by 1.7 million Japanese citizens, urging the U.S. to make changes towards stronger gun control. The Hattori's recognized that attitudes towards gun ownership in the U.S. and Japan are quite different due to Americans feelings about the second amendment and the need to be able to protect themselves but their point is this if they desire to have guns at home and in their areas they have to accept stronger gun control laws because it is very easy for we human beings to make a mistake and that's exactly right it's easy to say i need to protect myself but once you've shot the mailman 
or the kid who walked up for a party, there's no taking that back. Another petition was initially signed by 120,000 Americans, was presented to the United States Congress, and as signatures continued to be added, that number eventually got up to a million signatures. Prior to Yoshi's death in 1991, there had been a bill introduced to mandate background checks and a five-day waiting period for the purchase of firearms in the U.S. This was called the Brady Bill, and it was introduced after the attempted assassination of then-President Ronald Reagan in 1981 during which the press secretary, James Brady, was shot and critically wounded. After the death of Yoshihiro Hattori and the support of his parents, as well as the haymakers, this bill finally passed in 1993 and was signed into law by Bill Clinton. Walter Mondale, former vice president and then U.S. ambassador to Japan, presented a copy of the Brady Gun Violence Prevention Act to Yoshi's parents, saying that Yoshi's death had a very definite impact on the passage of the Brady Bill. And all of this is laid over the context of the 1990s and the early 2000s, where there was actually a lot of targeting of tourists and foreign people in the U.S., mainly in Florida, but all over the U.S., where people were renting cars and the rental car stickers were cluing bad people into, hey, these people don't have anyone here. They're from somewhere else. They're probably vulnerable. And there were quite a few countries that were issuing and still will issue travel advisories for their citizens traveling to the United States because mainly our steady stream of mass shootings and domestic terrorism and the gun situation had begun getting better. But then after 9-11, people were scared and jittery and the gun laws that were in place started to be eroded. And that's where we are now. There was a quote in one of the later articles from Yoshi's father, Masaichi, and this reflects something that you said a few minutes ago, Rachel. Masaichi or Mr. Hattori said, quote, sometimes I feel like he's still in America. Someday he'll come back home, I say to myself, end quote. And in 1996, land was set aside to create a meditation garden for the public. And the inscription reads, in 1992, Yoshihiro Hattori, a 16-year-old exchange student from Japan, was shot and killed when he accidentally approached the wrong house on his way to a party in Baton Rouge. In his memory, the Hattoris, the Yoshi Coalition, and Yoshi's host family, the Haymakers, have devoted their lives to increase understanding among cultures and reduce gun violence. In his memory, 1996, land was set aside to create a meditation garden for the public. And the inscription reads, in 1992, Yoshihiro Hattori, a 16-year-old exchange student from Japan, was shot and killed when he accidentally approached the wrong house on his way to a party in Baton Rouge. In his memory, the Hattoris, the Yoshi Coalition, and Yoshi's host family, the Haymakers, have devoted their lives to increase understanding among cultures and reducing gun violence. In his memory, Toshiji Yoshida, a landscaping contractor in Konan City, Japan, made a personal gift of these stones to our city. The peace stones were dedicated in 1996 and named Fear Less and Love More. We invite you into our peace meadow. Remember, meditate, pray, gather, act. Work for a nonviolent world. And I'm going to be posting pictures of the peace meadow on Instagram and, and the inscription, but I thought that was a, a sweet gesture by Japan to come back and say, we just hope you can do better. Basically, that's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. We hope you can do better. Yeah, that's good. It's quite, well, it's peaceful, isn't it, in, its, in itself? But how respectful are they to human life? And, you know, Very not, much so. Not wanting to take an eye for an eye or, like, react aggressively, but more trying to teach and educate people mm -hmm. um, that change is better. Yes. And it's very similar to 
Mrs. Hattori's reaction when she met the haymakers, her first inclination was to ask how Webb was doing. And I just, I'm so touched by that. Yeah. So that is our downer story for today. What a downer it was. <laughs> was that was um, it was interesting though because it we don't I don't often look at crimes like this because they don't often happen, do they, Rachel, in the UK? I mean, you hear them like that's one I could think of was that farmer who shot and killed a teenager in his farmhouse, but then it turned out he intentionally lured them into the house and shot them anyway, and he made it look like they were. He, he did it. He wanted to shoot them before he even got there. So that was a little it, bit different. It was the setup. Yeah, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really happen. So it's interesting I to think... hear. And I just think like Japanese people are not known to be tall people. And so this is a 16 year old boy. He said he moved gracefully, which meant it, he moved softly. He was, he didn't weigh much. Anyone, especially if you're a six foot two man, right. if someone like that's approaching you, how can you feel threatened by that? How. Right. Yeah. Especially with it sounds like the, his arms was out as well. So I mean that's yeah. it doesn't matter if it's by his side or above his head, when your palms are away from you, it's a universal sign that you mean no harm. Mm-hmm. Well and this kid had a baby face. We'll yeah. we'll post his photo as well. He just had the sweetest face. We were chatting as well about the fact that this probably happens a fair bit in America and what you don't hear are these stories of like such unfortunate events and circumstances that lead to death. Like really the, the reports that we get over the water are the really, you know, big kind of tragic cases, but this probably happens more often than not, right? Mistaken identity or, you know, cases where like it's blatant racism that perhaps aren't that attractive to like overseas media uh, that just aren't reported over here. But I'm sure confident that that you'd probably see this a lot more in the States with the fact that homeowners can and do own guns and, you know, are able to protect their property and their lives with force like that. Do you know what this reminds me of as well? And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going off a slight tangent, so feel free to cut this mm-hmm. out if you wish. Uh, I was reading maybe a month or two ago, maybe a bit more or less than that, about this English guy who was in America to visit his partner, his girlfriend. And he was like a super brainy, smart guy. Who I think he was some sort of scientist or something. And what had happened is he was in a hotel or motel. And someone, maybe a couple hundred yards away, had fired a gun. And it had gone through the wall and hit him in the head and killed him instantly. And they obviously never could find out who it is. But again, it leads to like the gun control thing that there's that maybe the attitude among obviously not everyone, but that attitude among some people that you don't have to take proper care and attention when you're owning a gun and that it's fine. So this person obviously thought it was because apparently this motel backed out behind it was some woods and behind that was some apartment blocks. So mm-hmm. they'd obviously shot and gone through the woods and they obviously never meant to kill anyone, but it's the fact that they just thought nothing can happen if I shoot my gun. And it's that sort of mentality. Or you get the idiots shooting their guns off in the air on New Year's Eve. Gravity is going to grab that bullet and take it down. Some idiot shot his gun in the air somewhere a mile or two away. The bullet came down and shot her in the chest. No. Little girl. 
that you're not doing stupid shit that gets people killed. Better yet, when people get drunk and they just want to get trigger happy and just bring out the gun as a party trick. Like that happens Wild. quite often too. Yeah. Or they don't keep them secured and their little three-year-old gets a hold of it. I mean, it's so many things. It's, it, just... it's not that I'm even 100% against guns. I'm really not against guns in general. I'm against idiots who don't take care of them, who don't treat them with respect, who don't secure them. Who, you know, if you want to go, if you love having a gun and you want to go to the target range and shoot targets because that's fun, mm -hmm. I could see that would be fun. But I also don't want you taking it to the store and dropping it on the ground and shooting me in the head by accident. Mm -hmm. exactly. Sorry, we're, we are getting off. We are no, getting off subject. That's but. fine. And just, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not stupid enough to think that countries that have guns, it's it'd be impossible for a switch to happen in America to go gunless because it's in your culture. But there should always be gun... It's easy for countries that, that don't have them to stay not having them, but there should always be control there. It should always be... Well, I mean, you say that though, Andrew. Look what happened in Australia mm -hmm. all them years ago. There was the attack of the... There was an attack of a news anchor in... Like, I'm really testing my memory now, but basically she was, she was shot and killed on a location by someone and he took out a number of other people and you know three days later all households all household guns were eradicated that it became like, illegal wow that was slightly different though because see i mean don't forget in the uk it was a lot easier to have guns to a few decades ago but it wasn't as ingrained in the culture i mean it's part of the american i'm sorry to talk about you in a third party here but it's part of the american constitution the right to bear arms isn't it so it's a little bit different mm -hmm. i'm not defending these people but it's just it's when you when you grow up with the constitution is what gave your country freedom then you yeah don't want to lose part of that uh, i'm not no i there should, there should be controls but yeah i think it, without changing the constitution we can't take all guns away from people and i don't think that anybody really even suggests that we should but we should have enough background checks that unstable people aren't getting them and we should have limitations on where you can take them mm -hmm. you know you can't yeah. take them to the airport there are limitations and everybody accepts that you're not supposed to take them to the airport except some of our elected representatives who, who still try to take them to the airport Fair so enough. anyway interesting why don't we let you guys tell a story today too yeah, so <laughs> I, I guess it, it i guess it falls on us to bring you the uplifting story yes please do now, now you know beth bailey and even you rachel you know, when I was putting this story together, I realised how difficult it is to actually write something that is uplifting. And <laughs> it's due to the natural instinct we have as as true crime creators. We we always tend to lean towards the macabre. So it's a, it's a little bit difficult. So I've done my best. It may seem like it's going a little dark, but hopefully it gets happy at the end. Are you are you worried that we aren't going to understand this problem? <laughs> we do this every week. <laughs> Uh, so I want to introduce you to Pooja Gwad. And while she is young, and she is still alive, so I'm going to throw it out there straight away. While she is young, I still want to go back in time. Just over nine years ago, to the 22nd of January 2013. Now Pooja lived with her two brothers and her parents in a small house in a suburban slum settlement area of Mumbai called Gilbert Hill which is in the Western Indian state of Maharashtra. Sorry right. for anyone if I got that wrong. Now, I know a lot of us may know Mumbai by its previous name, Bombay, because uh, it only changed over to Mumbai in 1995. So if you're wondering where is this city, it used to be called Bombay. And so despite, it is actually the sixth most populous 
metropolitan area in the world with 23 million people. It's still, surprisingly, only the second largest city in India. So you can imagine it's a really busy place and it's known as being the financial, commercial and entertainment capital of India. So it's, I want to set the scene, I'm sorry, I don't mean to set the scene because I know we're not on my pod now, but our pod, but... It's, it's it's a thriving it's thriving it's always busy when i was researching this it made me think when i lived in manila one of the things i could never get used to was even at two o'clock three o'clock four o'clock five o'clock in the morning there were still traffic jams and there was still traffic everywhere and so i, I imagine it to be like that somewhat so so on this day though puja was she was only seven years old and despite living in what is known as a slum area, she lived and grew up in a loving family. Her father was the only person working in the family, and the little money he did earn selling snacks at a railway station, it went on his family, on food, utilities, and similar. So they didn't earn much, but what they had, they were happy with. So they were poor but happy. But it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Like all siblings, Pooja sometimes got on wonderfully with her two brothers. And sometimes they argued and fought like cats and dogs. That's pretty normal anywhere in the world. So on the morning on this day, the 22nd of January 2013, Pujo was walking to school with her older brother, Rohit. Now, he was the eldest out of her two brothers. But as I said earlier, on this particular day, they were fighting. They were bickering about non-important things. And the main thing was the fact that her brother wanted her to hurry up because he was going to be late for school and he didn't want to be tardy. So it got heated between her brother and her. And so her brother left her in the end. He ran ahead so he could get to school on time. So Pooja carried on to school. She knew the route. She'd done it every day. And she'd taken it countless times before. So as she got to her school, she got to outside of her school. And she saw a couple. Now you have to remember, she was a young child in a culture that's especially taught to respect your elders. Any adult, firstly any adult couple would seem old to a young child. Don't matter if they're young or old, because they're adults, they seem old. And yeah, like I say, the culture is to respect your elders. So when this couple approached her at around 8.30 a.m., talking to her and talking about how hot it is, she stopped and she spoke back to them because it would have been rude not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all the passers-by in that busy city outside of her school, a couple talking to a small child outside of her school, and bear in mind she was in a school uniform, it wouldn't have aroused suspicion. I mean, after all, it would have been a perfect normal scene. People would assume that they were her parents. So unfortunately for Pooja, this wasn't going to be a normal day. As the couple, after talking about the heat, they offered her an ice cream and chocolate. What young kid doesn't like ice cream? So when she followed them, they got near a car. And then just like that, in what seemed like a blink of an eye, they snatched her up and they put her in a car and they drove away. So after her disappearance, there was a massive media campaign in India to find her, but it was all in vain. She eventually became known as Girl Number 166. Oh, no. She got this title because she was the only one out of a total of 166 missing girls that went missing between 2008 and 2015 that was not located by police sub-inspector Rajendra Bullis and his team. So the ones that he got assigned, he found every single girl apart from Pooja, which is why she got known as girl number 166. Wow. Wow, that's awesome, though. That's a good record, yeah. It's I good, mean, was but... he connected? Is it true? Uh, 
wear my head. I goes. love your cynical side, though. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, people gave up after so many years, and years did pass. They accepted that she wouldn't be a found. They accepted that she was unfortunately most likely dead. But can you guess who didn't give up? Rishendra. Her family, yes. Oh. <laughs> no, so I was he, wrong. No, he 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 actually didn't give up. He, I didn't put this in the script, but now you've asked. He didn't give up. He tried finding her, and even when he retired, he kept a picture of her in his wallet in case he ever saw her or he could ask people about her. So he never actually gave up either, even oh, after he retired. I feel but, bad for saying he was involved. Now I take it back. <laughs> but, but yeah, her family never gave up hope that one day she would be found and would return home. Now, Pooja's aunt, Manju Devi, was only 16 years old at the time, but now she's 25. And this is what she had to say this year about how they incorporated the search for Pooja into their life. She said this. The search became part of our daily routine. My father, elder brother, and other family members searched for months, but we couldn't find any clue of her whereabouts. My father became depressed. My grandmother used to cry and pray to God for her safety. My grandmother died last year. So again, this looks like it's going dark, but bear with me. So without Googling, because I know Google answers everything in life. (laughs) I don't want to mess up the internet connection. I'm not taking that chance. (laughs) So where was she? Who took her? Why did they take her? Can you have any guess? Tell me again how many years she's been gone. She, at this point, we're talking this year when they were interviewed her family. So she'd been gone nine years. Okay. So now she's 16 and she's been gone since she was seven. Yes. And no one has ever seen any clue or no one had any idea of where she might be. She vanished into thin air. Yes. I feel like she's probably going to be in the next town over or like, you know, she's been kind of groomed to live underground maybe and not escape the house. You hear these stories where they literally live like three streets over but they have been taught, you know, you don't go outside, you don't question anyone. So, are we are we looking at that kind of case here? Like Elizabeth Smart. Yes, I don't want to yes. give I, I don't want to give anything away. But I said at the beginning, remember this is an uplifting tale. Pooja doesn't die. So now, hopefully, we've got rid of some of that tension out of the air. I want to introduce you to the couple that took her, Harry and Sonny de Souza. They were forty-one and twenty-eight respectively at the time. And they were a childless couple. They were desperate for a child. Every day of their marriage that passed seemed like it was just added extra pressure. No child, no purpose. So they planned to take a poor young child. And the thinking was if they take a poor child, they can treat them better than what they've been treated. And treat them well and bring them up as their own. So on this day on the 22nd of January 2013, they put their wicked plan into action. Because it is a wicked plan. Even though they thought they could treat a child better, it's a wicked plan. And so they snatched her Pooja with the promise of ice cream and chocolate. Now, once they snatched her, they took her straight out of Mumbai to avoid detection. Now, they initially stayed for two nights in the Haji Malang in Kalyan, which is famous for a fort on the hill, and they stayed there for two days. Now, they immediately, they say they knew this was wrong because they immediately threatened Pooja. They told her that if she ever said anything about her parents, they would throw her down a hill and kill her. And this is a seven-year-old child, so she would believe them. And she's getting off to such a great start with that new wonderful life they're going to give her, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So Awful people. Yeah, they they were able. After the first two days had passed, they took her to Harry's aunt's house in Goa. Now, Goa is a really touristy place where lots of 
Europeans go to try and find life, but they end up just getting high and partying all the time. So, but they this sounds like you're making some wild assumptions there. <laughs> Possibly. So they stayed there for roughly three to four months, and then they went on to Virar for two months. Now, at this time, I have to say, I know they threatened her at the beginning, but they were not mistreating her. They treated her like a daughter, even if they were in truth kidnappers. And after they was in Virar. They went to Karnataka and they stayed in a hostel for a year. And they even let Pooja attend lower kindergarten. So they were trying their best to treat her as a daughter, but even though we know that she wasn't. So by the time 2015 came, they returned to Mumbai. Now, depressingly for Pooja's family, they lived in the same neighborhood as her parents. Oh, wow. But something changed in the family dynamic with Harry and Sonny which made the way they treated her differently. And it also was the reason why they moved back to Mumbai. Sonny got pregnant and they had their own child. And that's wow. why things changed. And this is what Pooja herself had to say about the change. They used to give me proper food and take care of me. But once Sonny had her own baby, she started harassing me and would beat me. They kept me home and did not allow me to go out. It was like I was in prison. Harry used to speak in English and he taught me how to write in English at home, Pooja said. She went on to describe how they would beat her. They would beat me with a belt. They would kick me. They would punch me. One time they beat me with a rolling pin so badly that my back began to bleed. I was, I was also made to do chores at home and working 12 to 24 hour long jobs outside. So she was made to work at some point for 24 hours at a time. Do we feel like they were trying to get rid of her? As in, maybe she might run away or maybe she might die no. from a beating? No, not at all. I'll get on to why. Okay. I'll get on to not at all. So neighbours of the couple confirmed that while well, they knew that they had a daughter, because they never saw her and she never went outside except to go to work, they just assumed that she was a daughter. So it stayed like this for years. She was basically their servant. Eventually they put her out to work at a family's home who had no idea about Pooja's past, and she had to look after the children of the family and do all the household chores. But then, in 2021, so last year, something happened. While the couple were out of the house, not Harry and Sonny, while they were out of the house, she found one of their phones, and she went onto YouTube, and she put her own name into YouTube. Now, she found lots of posts and videos about her own kidnapping, but it didn't end there, because even though she found this, she was still afraid and it would take another nine months until one day she was so afraid about what was happening to her she thought they were going to kill her basically beat her to death wow that she overcame her fear about what they would do to her and she confided in another domestic help in that house called pramila devendra and pramila was 35 years old and this is what she had to say annie was the name that harry and sonny gave puja okay annie used to come to work with teary eyes and would tell me that her mother beat her. When she told me that her mother is not her real mother and that she had gone missing when she was a small child, I understood that her case was not normal. I started searching on Google using the name Pooja and found videos and posters with a photo of a small girl. Annie, I mean Pooja, immediately said that it was her picture. We tried calling on mobile numbers written on the posters, but then they hit another problem. Due to the fact that she had been missing nine years, None of the numbers were working anymore. Oh. None, that is, except one. And that number actually belongs to Pooja's neighbour. Oh, I thought you were going to say the policeman. No. <laughs> um, uh, Mohammed Rafiq Shahik. However, Mohammed was sceptical. 
He thought it was a scam at first to try and get money out of the family. He demanded a video call. And then he took the phone when they started the video call to pull his family home. So as soon as their eyes locked over the video call, they recognised each other. But Pooja's mum was wary. She was not wanting to be hurt by a scam. So she demanded that Pooja show her a birthmark so she could confirm that it was Pooja. This is what Pooja's mum had to say when she saw the birthmark. All my doubts were immediately gone. I knew that I had found my daughter. Oh, that's so sweet. So when the call ended, Pooja's family went to the police station to tell them that Pooja had been located. The couple, Harry and Sonny, were arrested, with Harry facing several criminal charges, including kidnapping, and Sonny, however, has yet to be charged, and and Harry is awaiting trial. So unfortunately for Pooja, her father died of cancer four months before she was found. And so she was actually found in August of this year, so only a couple of months ago. Her, her, that was her, yeah, her mum has been quoted as saying that she's trying to make up for lost time by cooking Pooja's favourite food and brushing her hair. Then they try and spend as much time together, but life is hard for them. Since her father's death, her mum had to take over his job so she could still provide for the family. And wow. this, this is how her mum described her financial situation. Now I also have legal expenses. Our condition is such that if I miss a day's work, we won't have money for food the next day. So she has to work seven days a week just to feed her family. So as for Pooja, it's a slow process. Like I say, it only ended a few months ago, but so she's still processing everything. And she says that she gets sad that she's never going to see her dad again. And she still gets regular nightmares. Now for safety reasons, she spends most of her time at home. Unless she's with a family member when she goes out. And that's probably understandable. You're not going to want her to go out by herself again. Mm -hmm. And so this is the last quote. I know I've given you lots of quotes today, but this is the last quote I want to give you from Pooja. I want to help my mother financially, but I'm not allowed to. I also want to study. What I really like is she's still got simple goals. She just wants to help her family and she wants to study and go to school. It shows to me that there's hope that she can return back to getting over this. But... We have to remember this is a happy story. So they are reunited. Pooja can now go into a woman and try to live a life. Now Pooja's mum said that while life might be hard, she couldn't be happier. So I want to give you one last quote, just to hopefully uplift it for us, before I finish from Pooja's mum. So she said, work is exhausting, but every time I see Pooja, I find my strength again. I'm just so happy that she's back. So I know that went pretty dark, but she got found. She's happy. She wasn't... Luckily, sexually abused or anything like that. She doesn't have to deal with that side of things. But I just want to go over a few stats. A couple of paragraphs, if you don't mind. So child trafficking is a serious problem. This will answer your questions, Rachel, by the way. Child trafficking is a serious problem in India. With a child going missing every eight minutes. What? Yes. Uh, So they're often trafficked into domestic help. Oh man! So, so they're basically put into, children. Yeah, they're basically put into slavery in businesses. Uh, also, oh. domestic help all put into slavery in businesses. And if it's not one of those two things, unfortunately, it's to be sexually abused. Oh my um, god! It's worth noting that most places say that record these stats say that the number of missing children is probably a lot higher, with most cases not being reported because the families oh. are too poor and they just don't report it to the police. So. Mm-hmm. I just want to give you one example. It's a village of Jara in India. Now, this village only has 14 families in the village. But at the moment, there are 14 children missing from that village. 
Holy crap. So even when they managed to arrest someone for trafficking a child, fewer than 1% of arrests result in a conviction. So that's less than 1% of arrests. That's mind-blowing. And it's also worth noting that the majority of children that are taken are girls, not boys. Yeah. But Pooja is home. She's with her mother. And she's happy. Well, she's happy as she can be at the moment. I feel like for a 16-year-old, she'll have had to do a hell of a lot of growing up in her short life. You know, she'll have some things that she needs to kind of unpack at a later date as well when she's ready to. Like, I can't imagine she'll be able to gloss over those years that she was tormented. Do any of you believe that Sonny and Harry actually thought they were going to grab a daughter? off the street because to me it sounds like if they really were wealthy people and they really just wanted a child that they couldn't have themselves why didn't they just go adopt a child you know how many orphaned children there are in india that are looking for homes they were not wealthy at all oh i thought they were wealthy they thought their mentality they thought that they could provide a better life but in reality they they couldn't Uh, that's why they they stayed in a hostel for a year Um, okay I don't know they're entitled enough to think that though is just speaks volumes about them as individuals and it angers me that she will be out probably would have been a 50 50 decision right and they've both in equal measures abused and and kept and retained that poor girl under like against her will but the fact that Sunny is able to live a normal life whilst you know probably taking care of her child really angers me because they should both be punished right Mm -hmm. and the biggest punishment there would be if their real motivation was because they wanted a child and then if she had to go to jail prison or whatever the punishment would be for them then she would lose access to that child and that would be the real punishment absolutely now you know what that mother went through you can't be with your child now you know what she went through and that would have been the more justified but i think it's also pretty sad that there's families out there that are poor enough that they just think oh well i can't go to the police with this i watched one interview with a couple and they said that this person came to the house and they said that we can put your daughter in a rich family and she'll be looked after. She might have to do a few light chores, but she'll be given an education. She'll be brought up as part of the family. And it was local, so they could see her. So they said yes. Like it's something we can we can't give our child. So then a couple of months went past, and they hadn't heard anything. So they they went to this person because a trafficker earns about three hundred dollars for passing a child on. That's why they do it in the first place. And they went to this person and they said like. We wanted to see her daughter. Right. And the person wasn't no help, so they went to this house that she was supposed to be at. No one. And what they believe now is, this was like years ago, and what they believe now is that she was taken abroad by a family. A wealthy Indian family is basically taken abroad, and she's a servant now in oh, a Middle Eastern country. And this, they asked the mum, they said to her, do you think you ever see your daughter again? And she was like, what chance have I got? I've got no money. I can't even travel to the city to look for her. Of course, I'm not going to see her again. Yeah. It's just, I made this depressing, haven't I? But it's... Um... Quite. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the next one, guys. <laughs> there was an episode that we did on, on trafficking, and this daughter was tricked into believing that she was going to be given an, a well-paying job. She lived in Bangladesh, and they were supposed to take her to this town near the border with India. And then of course, when they got to the border with India, they just kept going. They snatched her over the border. They took her, I think it was Kolkata. 
And the mother went to the police and said, my daughter's been stolen. I can't find her. They won't bring her back. And the police were like, sure, we'll look into it. But she knew they weren't going to. Uh So she got herself trafficked to the same place with the same people. She went and said she was looking for a job. They took her basically to the same location. The daughter had already been moved. And then they got connected with each other. And the mom went in there and rescued her daughter. And they both They both went home. That's great. They're like, okay. Why don't I remember this? Uh, but how so. uplifting is that, Andrew? <laughs> That's very uplifting. I, I, I've listened to all of Beth Bader's episodes. I believe maybe one or two of the earlier ones I haven't, but I don't remember that story. Um, this one was a long time ago. Yeah, it, it was in like maybe episodes. In, in the teens somewhere. So it was a long time ago. I, you don't have to memorize all of our episodes. It's really okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to keep on top of our own. <laughs> yeah, it is. Brilliant. But that's, at least that's more uplifting. I'll learn from that. That, is. No, that, <laughs> that was, that was um, if anything as well, Andrew, not only did you bring us a, a good story to warm our hearts at the end, but also to, again, raise awareness of something that I guess naively I haven't had to worry or think about or give too much consideration to. My God, being a mother myself, I would live in fear of having a child or a daughter and, you know, living in a village where children just went missing or living in a city where I I couldn't even let my child from the car to the school gate without physically delivering her because, yeah, it just doesn't bear thinking about. You know, the thing that is kind of the real thing that's warming my heart is that even though she got home and her father had passed away and she's never going to see him again, her mom is moving heaven and earth to try to take care of her. She's working seven days a week and the daughter says, I'd like to get a job and help my mom, but I'm not allowed. So the mom is saying, no, you're staying home where you're safe and I will go out, I will bring home money and I will feed you, I will take care of you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a beautiful, sweet thing. Love wins. Love does win. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> well, this has been really a fun day, you guys. And I'm sorry yes. about my internet crapping out on you. But, <laughs> no, but I'm it. so grateful that you have come on our show today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pleasure. we would and love to have you, you back as well. Uh, yeah. We will repay the favor. We will reboot the internet first next time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we'd love to have you back on. And even I'm going to commit to something here. And we're even going to let Rachel be the one that tells the story. So it's a that little bit less awesome. dark. We'll look forward to that. Loved meeting you both. I love your pod. And Thank yeah, you. looking forward to, to working together again. I love the bloopers as well yeah oh yeah it's it's, it's why i stay to the end a lot of the time i'll i'll not stay to the end of episodes of other podcasts but i say i like your bloopers thank you you have been fantastic and it's been so wonderful to have you yeah it's so cool to finally see you guys yeah. i just say it's weird to see your faces because obviously you hear voices usually mm-hmm. when i'm walking or something and yeah it's i love your podcast and i i'm not one for giving people compliments when I don't mean it. And usually it's a nice Friday afternoon. That means a lot to us because we have a lot of respect for what you do also. Mm -hmm. But what I'm going to take away from what you just said, he thinks it's weird to see our faces. Faces for radio, I guess. Now podcast. Sorry, what I took away from that was that Andrew hears voices when he goes on walk. (laughs) Only telling me to pick up the knife, it's fine. Thank you to Rachel and Andrew from Picture the Scene Podcast. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that can go in the bloopers. <laughs> yeah, our bloopers will just be you guys talking about work. I what on earth is IKEA cake?
You've not had the <laughs> Dane Bar cake from Ikea? Nope. Oh, they do a lovely cake, uh, cake that's made out of the, you know the Dane Bar, Dine Bar, I think they call it, used oh, yeah. in yeah. America. It's Dane Bar in Sweden, isn't it? Dine Bar. Um, they do a lovely cake made out of Dine Bars. <laughs> no clue what you're talking about. Cake. No cake. Clue. I stole her from her dad. I have a six-year-old. Obviously, she doesn't have a clue about any bad in the world but i have high hopes right that that one day i can teach her the workings of true crime and podcasting who knows all you have to do is make sure that she's unpopular enough like she never gets any friends and then you'll have no friends i could do the math and change it to celsius but that would take a minute and i don't think it's worth the trouble in the uk when people are talking about how warm it is they use fahrenheit and when they're talking about how cold it is, they use Celsius. I we like making why. life complicated for ourselves, eh? She's been so obnoxious lately, though. She's I like, think oh, she's... they're recording now. She's run. Oh, why don't we just go all in and record a podcast? Like... I think I need to do a split of lip in the middle of this 3,000 word story. A 44 Magnum Swift. Good grief, this is hard <laughs> to say. We, um... Posh. We used to have, well, he's chrome, so if that makes him posh, then okay. <laughs> Some of the spectators erupted in. Oh, wait, um, you you froze. Has she gone for you as well? Rachel? Yeah, yeah. They might still be chatting away, thinking with her. No, they've they've left. I'm so sorry about that, you guys. That's Don't okay. Worry. We'll just wait for you to come back. You When you do the editing, you'll probably hear us talking a little bit about work. but obviously... We had a bit of a work catch up, yeah. <laughs> okay, well. We like to mix true crime with work. It works well. <laughs> well, there are people at my work I'd like to kill, but I'm not sure that's the same thing. Who is that? We just don't put our bloopers at the end.